Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Almost 10 million Americans suffer from serious mental illness. 26% of homeless staying in shelters live with a serious mental illness. Those who have a serious mental illness are also more likely to struggle from other serious physical medical problems like diabetes, high blood pressure, and heart disease. So how is their illness treated and in what setting? Project Transition is a residential treatment program for those living with a severe mental illness. Joining us is Project Transition CEO, Luke Crabtree. Mr. Crabtree, welcome to the program. Good morning, thank you, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, let's start with the basics. What is Project Transition? Well, thank you, Scott. So uh, Project Transition is a comprehensive solution for persons who struggle with serious mental illness, co-occurring substance use disorder, and or a dual diagnosis of serious mental illness and intellectual disabilities. Uh, we provide all of our services uh, in the community, uh, including uh, providing access to safe, affordable housing. Um, we believe fundamentally that uh, people can and do recover from serious mental illness, and uh, our mission is to enable each individual person who struggles in this manner to live a life, one, that is meaningful to her or him, two, in the community, three, on terms that she or he defines. How is this different? Well, we're different in a, in a number of, of uh, important ways. Uh, in a traditional delivery system, you have um, a lot of emphasis put on inpatient uh, stays. And this is where uh, a member, we call the people that we have a privilege to serve members. This would be a setting where a member would go when she or he is in a, a very high state, acute state of distress. And then uh, once that stay is over, the follow-up care is usually done in, uh, in an outpatient setting or in the home with services wrapped around the person. The problem with that, which is a great approach for about 80% of the population, uh, for about 20% of the population, which is the population that we are specifically uh, have a specific calling to serve, that, uh, that disjoint approach really doesn't work. So our members really uh, have difficulty following the doctor's instructions. Uh, they have difficulty uh, developing the supported uh, uh, healthy relationships that all of us need to be, uh, to be successful in the community. They have difficulty finding and maintaining uh, employment. Uh, they have difficulty maintaining safe, affordable housing. So there's different uh, uh, aspects to uh, an individual's life that uh, are impacted by serious mental illness that if we don't address them, it's very unlikely that the member will live a life that's meaningful in the community. One thing I've learned with doing this job over the years is that language, words are very important. I'm curious, why member rather than patient or client? Thank you, Scott. Um, so we believe fundamentally in the power of community. So each of us as human beings uh, really do well when we feel that we are a part of something larger than we are as individuals. So we refer to our, our, our members as members. They're members of the Project Transition community. They're members of the wider community. And by just 
starting from that uh, uh, that premise, that implies that we need to work on certain things uh, to live that meaningful life around community, learning how to be a, a, a good neighbor, learning the good neighbor policy, learning how to... Um, uh, to uh, develop relationships with one another. So the idea is to, from the beginning, to help our, the people that we serve feel that they are a part of the community, and that's the, the, hence the term member. Already, I've used uh, the term serious mental illness several times, and I want to kind of define what we're talking about. What is serious mental illness in your mind? Well, thank you. So uh, there are legal definitions of serious mental illness and serious and persistent mental illness, but I don't want to get into the minutia of that. Basically, uh, what serious mental illness means to me is that a person has a, a mental illness that significantly impairs his or her ability to live a life that's meaningful uh, into in the community. So it either seriously impairs their ability to form lasting relationships, it seriously impairs their ability to maintain a budget and stable housing, it seriously impairs their ability to work in a continuous uh, uh, manner. So key aspects of a person's life are completely debilitated by the underlying mental illness. Even though you didn't want to get into the, the legal definition, just to let our audience know, some of the things that are defined as serious mental illness, some of the conditions or disorders would include schizophrenia, yes. uh, bipolar disorder. Yeah. Are you saying that, uh, you know, from, from how you described it, it sounds as if uh, there are people who may not, not be diagnosed with those uh, illnesses, but it is a serious mental illness because it keeps them from doing the things you described. Uh, that, that's exactly correct. So uh, many of our members um, come to us because they are in and out of different treatment experiences because they are, experience, they are experiencing significant behavioral crises. So they're behaving in a way that is um, not consistent with what um, others in the community would see as appropriate uh, behaviors. And often those behaviors f foot to an underlying uh, mental illness that is either non not diagnosed, incorrectly diagnosed, underdiagnosed, not medicated, incorrectly medicated, under-medicated, the member is not following the medication. Uh, uh, so often, just the diagnosis, so getting a really high-quality uh, workup on our members uh, is, is critical. The other thing that we've often seen is that people in our members' lives uh, have been doing the best they can to help our members. So uh, often a member might acquire a label that really is not appropriate for her or him, but it, it, it enabled that person to get access to certain services or it enabled them to um, you know, have some supported education or stuff. So often the labels are, are frankly not correct with our members. Uh, and so really look, again, congruent with sound principles of recovery, 
really looking at the member's ability to live that meaningful life and uh, addressing the serious mental illness in that context has proven to be very helpful for our members. When we're talking about mental illness, something you just said uh, strikes me is that there's not a blood test. No. There's not something that uh, you can go in and, uh, like, we would go to the doctor for, you know, diabetes, heart disease, those kind of physical things. You have to rely on the judgment and what you're told, what you learn. Um, and when you talk about misdiagnosis, when you talk about medications that are not, how do you try to do the best that you can? Because I'm sure you're not right 100% of the time either. How do you work with people where you, it may be misdiagnosed, it may not be right, the medication may not be right? Well, uh, thank you, because we are not 100% correct. And really, everything that I'm sharing with you, Scott, from comes from a position of of humility, having tried many, many things, uh, and but when working with our members, who are some of society's most vulnerable members, um, you you learn a lot of about what doesn't work. Um, but but what we really uh, want to make sure that we do with every member uh, is that we take the time to really get to know the member. So the member has had significant treatment experiences prior to coming to Project Transition. A life with serious mental illness is not an easy life. It often begins in childhood. A hundred percent of our female members and the male members are not far behind, high 90s, have had significant trauma in their lives, almost all occurring at uh, in childhood. What do you mean trauma? Uh, abuse. Physical abuse, sexual abuse. It's mm-hmm. it's the kind of of experiences that no human being should have to go to go through, and so you know, you, it, 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 just a, a very difficult life. So what we want to do is make sure that we have a fundamentally different experience with our members because they've already had all the other sort of traditional interventions that would make sense and would have at some point along the way been effective for the majority of, of, of people who struggle. Uh, yet for our population, they were not uh, helpful. So what we do, uh, Scott, is take the time to get to know the member's first social reality. So if a, if a human being had you know, healthy social relationships in all aspects of his or her life, which I don't have, chances are you don't have. Chances, oh, I can uh, guarantee uh, you, that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so this is more of an ideal than something, right? But if, if, um, if someone had healthy relationships with landlords, family, work, school, that person would be in a very good position to live a meaningful life in the community. So identifying the member's social reality and having some tools and processes around enabling our members to to develop those social relationships that are so uh, important to someone living a fulfilling life that's you know that's step one the other thing that we want to make sure that we get to know is the members experiential reality so you or I or any of our listeners have had key experiences in our lives that have helped to define who we are as people well we really want to get to know 
all of those. Some of those experiences are not positive. Some of them are dominated by healthcare interventions. But also, when did the member feel good about herself? When did she, what, what was going on in her life experiences when she was able to live in the community? And that may have occurred when she was seven. I mean, these are, are, are complex lives. But the idea is get a handle on the social reality, get a handle on this experiential reality, have the tools to do that, and then really doing a comprehensive assessment that looks at all of the domains in a human being's life, including the psychiatric and medical domain, but not solely the psychiatric and medical domain. And then going through that process prior to prescribing, even project transition, any any specific intervention, um, you know, and or, or, or even our program, not starting with our program, not starting with the intervention, instead starting with a very rigorous way to get to know the person as a human being, and then crafting a whole person strategy. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing serious mental illness and Project Transition, a residential program to treat serious mental illness. And there's a reason that uh, I wanted to focus on this today, and I'll tell you about it or ask about it in just a moment. Our guest is Luke Crabtree, who is Project Transition's CEO. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org, or you can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. This is part of WITF's Transforming Health Project to learn more about mental illness plus a deeper look at the changing tide of healthcare. Check out WITF's Transforming Health from policy to personal choices. We're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and Wellspan Health. And, and before we get into some of the specifics of uh, Project Transition, I just said that one of the reasons I wanted to focus on this today is this, this is this residential program. As you said earlier, it's not for everyone, maybe like 20 percent. But this is how the state, Pennsylvania, is leaning this way, correct? Yes. Uh, so we've had uh, phenomenal advances uh, in, in the, uh, Pennsylvania around uh, recovery transformations, um, person-centered uh, practices. So we're we're very blessed in the great state of Pennsylvania uh, uh, with with very forward thinking leaders. Uh, and uh, one of the things to keep in mind is that um, there are many uh, there are many stakeholders uh, in the, in this whole magic picture. And um, uh, you know, advocacy is key for our our population. I believe that each of us are advocates in our own way. And um, so, when you're looking at a a comprehensive solution at the state level, you really want to keep in mind uh, having rigorous evidence-based practices that are delivered in the community to the fullest extent possible. And uh, the and uh, the state of Pennsylvania has has really been at the forefront in moving in that direction. All right, so let's talk about some of the specifics. Uh, yours is a residential program. Uh, those being treated live in apartments. Uh, describe how they live, you know, the physical setting, and why there's an advantage to that. 
So we want to do uh, some some things with our members, and and really the whole the, at, at a high level, the key about project transition is that it's project transition, it's not project permanent. So it, it's our job to work ourselves out of a job. And if you look at the lives of our members, they have been dominated by what I would call a containment strategy, often because they have significant behavioral dysregulation in their lives. So uh, they're, many times their behaviors that, uh, that they uh, have are scary to people. And um, so folks have a, an understandable desire to contain those behaviors, which in many cases can be correct in the moment. It's just that we can't only contain behaviors because th then the member doesn't learn any skills. We go skills. back 50, 100 years, that's how it was done, yes. is that people would be institutionalized and they may spend the rest of their lives there. Yes, yes. And um, so lots of, as I mentioned, stakeholders uh, on this issue. And uh, what's been phenomenal is uh, the move away from institutionalization. Uh, you know, these these are uh, residents who have not committed a crime, so you really don't want to lock them up. And I won't go into all of right. the different views on that. But so what we what we do is we say, okay, what would a member want? And we ask our members, well, what would you want? Uh, and uh, our members are unlikely to say, you know, I want a really clean sort of Lysol smell, you know, flooring and all that. They're, they're much more likely to say, well, I don't know, maybe live in an apartment, have a friend, a couple roommates. I uh, want to go back. I want to get my GED or I want to go back to school. I'd like to have a job, but I'm worried uh, because I, um, I have a tendency to get uh, scared when I'm in crowds, different things like that. But the idea is to start where the member could imagine that she wants to be as opposed to having her earn the way incrementally. The, I, the problem with earning your way incrementally is you're never f really into your situation because you're just trying to get a little bit better. So starting in an apartment is, is really key. And what we want to do is we want to have spread. Uh, we want the apartments uh, to be in the wider community. We don't want congregate housing uh, for all kinds of reasons. Not the least is... There's a lot of stigma around mental illness, and you don't want to want, 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 oh, look, that's the Project Transition folks over there for all kinds of reasons. So the idea is to uh, integrate the member into the community from day one uh, and wrap the services and supports and community uh, building uh, around him or her. What do you mean integrate them into the community? Great. Um, great question. So uh, let's say that a member has um, had significant inpatient hospitalization experiences and not a lot of community experiences. Maybe they were in a residential treatment facility as a, as a kid and a young adult. And so, so they, may be, they may lack the skills that you need uh, in order to live in an apartment. So 
for example, you can't go out on your balcony at 10 o'clock at night and scream at the top of your lungs. Uh, even though you may be experiencing significant uh, symptoms or you're, you're, you're really struggling, you just can't do that uh, because your only interactions with your neighbors in the apartment complex will be when you're in crisis, which is not when our members are at their best. So the idea is to start in an apartment, but meet the apartment manager when you are not in crisis, as opposed to when, only when you're in crisis, meeting your neighbors, uh, get being involved in the community. Maybe we're working on employment, but there's some volunteer work that you can do. Learning how to stay compliant with your medications. So. Our members bring certain, there's a, a level of competency in each of the relationships that a member has, whether that's a relationship with his or her doc, uh, primary care physician, um, the, the apartment complex. There are certain skills that the member needs in order to have a meaningful relationship, whether that's a therapeutic relationship or otherwise. And so the idea of to integrate the member into the community is to put him or her in the community and work on those skills that he or she needs in order to be successful. Mm. You mentioned um, medication. How much of a challenge, because we've heard that, and that that's when someone who is struggling with a mental illness often does go into crisis is when they've not been consistent with taking their medication. How much of a challenge is that? I, I would say that that is a huge challenge, uh, and there are there are competencies on the members' part, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. But there are also system and structural issues within healthcare delivery that really stack the deck against a member. So, for example, you, we we talked about uh, when a member does go into an inpatient facility. Well, often all the meds are changed at that point because the dominant issue in the minds of the psychiatrist and others is um, the, the, um, the, the behavioral dysregulation and the symptoms that led to the member being in the hospital. So you gotta get it under control. You, got, you gotta get it under control. So that type of a medication uh, regimen would be fundamentally different in many cases from what our docs would do in order to enable the member to be successful in the community. So you've got lots of moving parts in the in the lives of our members. The other thing is that uh, the, uh, medications are often hard to understand. So while there's informed consent and you know everybody's doing a good job with that, does the member really understand what it is that he or she is taking? And can he or she be independent in managing that medication regimen? Often not. Uh, there needs to be some education and skills building there. The other thing to keep in mind is that many of the, um, the psychotropic medications have pretty significant physical side effects, and they're not pleasant. So weight gain, um, you know, just lethargy. There's, so often, uh, and, and for many of our members, the side effects are almost as bad or they may feel that they're worse than the illness symptoms. So many of our members really don't like the, me the medications that they, they actually need. So understanding why you need that, why it's in your best interest to stay compliant, but then also addressing some of the side effects through rigorous 
health and wellness, exercise, eating habits, again, looking at the whole person and, and coming up with a game plan that she or he can own and implement in his or her own life. You put a lot of emphasis on, from my research, on uh, vocational therapy, uh, trying to help uh, your members find a job and be successful. Why is that important? So um, if you think about your own life, imagine if you didn't have a job. I mean, if, 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 imagine that you didn't have a job for a year, for two years. Imagine the strain on your family. Imagine the strain on your sense of self-worth and pride. And so for many, many members, and there's a lot of good research on this, Scott, um, having a job is like first and foremost, it, it, it gives our, our members a sense of purpose. It gives them ties into the community. It gives them it gives us that hook where we can create hope in the in the member's life. So yeah, it's a job, but for our members, it's often life changing uh, because now there's a reason there's a reason to get up in the morning. People are relying on me. I, I, I have responsibilities. Uh, one of the most um, uh, rewarding experiences that I had was with a member who had been with us for a number of years, had successfully graduated from our, our program, uh, and was so excited to come back with his, his W-2 to show me, look, I'm paying taxes. So in this day and age, this was a young man who was so proud that, you know, he even said after a life of, um, of being on government programs, I'm now giving back. So for many of our members, having a job is, is a source of pride. And for many of the caregivers, if you look at our members and their lives, people, it's easy to conclude that our members can't work. However, that's not true. <laughs> Our members can work, they want to work, they all have their dreams and hopes and aspirations, and uh, th that vocational reality in the lives of our members is, is huge. We do know that there is a stigma, uh, often. Uh, do you have employers who are hesitant to work with someone who may be struggling with a mental illness? Uh, they, I mean, I... Yes, the, the the reason I'm I was stumbling a little bit, uh, Scott, is that um, if an employer really does not want to work with our members, we tend not to spend a lot of time with that employer. So, so it, it it's select. You, there's a, a sort of a self selection process, but what we also have found is that uh, employers who do work with our members are really happy because by the time a member has obtained particularly competitive employment, uh, they are very, very likely to take that job very seriously because they've been homeless. You know, they have, they have been without a job. They've, they know what it means to skip a meal because you don't have the money for the meal. They, so there, there's a sense of, of ownership of the job that is, is uh, very powerful, and so employers really appreciate that. Uh, I also noticed that family support. Now, this is something that you hear with almost anything 
having to do, any kind of program, any kind of treatment having to do with mental illness, is that family support's important. But how does that uh, show itself? How do you use the family support and why it's important? So families are, are really key. And they are key whether uh, there's a healthy, natural uh, support system of family. They're also key if that family reality is not healthy. And our members need to live in that reality, whether it's positive or negative, because you really you can't fire your family. <laughs> you know, so your family is your family. So uh, we have learned uh, we have a phenomenal relationship with NAMI. Uh, they are a, 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 a wonderful advocacy. National Association of Mental Illness. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. and um, they are very rigorous uh, in in family education and in uh, really advocating for families. And if you, if you think about the wider notion of family, it's, it's a, about belonging and having support systems. So uh, it's, you know, along with, with vocation uh, and other social relationships, the, the, the family unit is absolutely critical. Families are impacted by this a great deal. Yes, families are very significantly impacted uh, and it, it is it is really difficult uh, to live with a family member who has lifelong serious mental illness and the reality is there really isn't a magic there's some some folks have what's called a clausural awakening experience but that is uh, very rare there really aren't any magic pills out there and so uh, learning how to live in the family unit in the face of enduring symptoms is really what we're probably talking about with our members. We have about three minutes left, and uh, I want to uh, ask you, we have, a, we have a caller who asked this question. Um, how is Project Transition covered by insurance, and is it religiously based? So Project Transition is uh, funded by uh uh, the major insurers, uh, and also, but the majority of our funding comes from the Health Choices, which is the managed Medicaid program. So, depending on what county uh, you live in, you'll have a managed care organization that administers the Health Choices benefit along with the county, uh, and we're covered by by all of them uh, that are that have a meaningful um, uh, footprint in the state. Uh, we we are very. Uh, it's important to us that we support our members' spiritual growth in whatever manner she or he determines for him or herself. And so, while we don't have a specific religious uh, affiliation, we are very uh, mindful of the importance of spirituality in the lives of our members and support uh, whatever denomination they choose. When you say that uh, you're covered uh, by the major insurers, I imagine from what you're describing, this is intense, that this could be fairly expensive when people compared to other treatment options. Um, do you ever get pushback from insurance companies saying, well, we don't. We think they could be treated less expensively than this. So we're we're super blessed in uh, in the sense that our our uh, managed care partners really do know our members. So a member doesn't come to Project Transition um, by accident, nor as their first 
uh, treatment experience. So our members are known to insurance companies. They're known to the counties that we serve. They're known to the state. And so we really don't get a lot of pushback once a member is identified as being a good candidate for project transition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have about 30 seconds left. Uh, How long do patients normally stay with you? Uh, Our program is about a year. Uh, There's different step-down opportunities for our members within a continuum of care. Uh, but but all of our research shows that it, it really is about a year-long process. Mm. Uh, Luke Crabtree is the uh, CEO of Project Transition. I learned a lot here today, so uh, I'm glad that we had you on the program. And as you said earlier, this is a way that the state, this is something that the state is doing. Not for everyone, but uh, for those who uh, have struggled with serious mental illness. Mr. Uh, Crabtree, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Have a great day. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Shift on a desk for is the star of, and I noticed I called you the star of uh, WITF Cooks, the TV shows, and has appeared on Smart Talk many times before holidays to discuss cooking and eating. Today, Chef Desfour has something for us that's a little bit different. She reviews four cookbooks that contain every kind of summertime recipe you can think of. Chef Donna Marie Desfour, and I say the Marie part, so I know your mother's listening, uh, that you get that in there as well. And usually she comes in here bearing... uh, Treats, but today she brought four cookbooks. I can't eat them, but you tell me that uh, there are so many things in these cookbooks that uh, I would enjoy. You will, um, without hesitation. Any of these four cookbooks are filled with absolutely delicious food that is absolutely achievable in the home kitchen. And that's really what's key when you look for a cookbook. Uh, You want to be able to know with confidence that the money you plunk down for something that looks absolutely spectacular on your shelf or on your coffee table or, you know, on your kitchen counter is actually going to deliver that same delicious looking food and it's actually going to taste delicious. Well, these four books, they actually do that. By the way, I should mention that after our last segment, uh, Donna and her husband, very involved in the Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet. Yeah, she's adjusting her chair right now and you almost went down below. I could hardly see you. I was lost. I'm back. (laughs) If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, how did you find these four books? Okay, well, actually, the four books uh, sort of found me one of the benefits of being in such a great food community here at WITF. Um, Publishers and cookbook authors or chefs will actually send us cookbooks to review in the hopes that we'll put them on their website or our website, um, WITF Cooks, and the Chef Donna blog page. Um, And that doesn't always happen. So um, when we get books, we sort of take a look at them. We dive in. We start cooking from them. We read them um, with some intensity. And uh, if they really start cutting the mustard, as I described, if you're actually able to cook um, from them in a realistic way in your kitchen, then uh, I go back to the publishing companies and the chefs or the authors and request permission to reprint recipes which they usually grant, and then we're off to the races. I write a full review, and it gets posted on um, WITF's 
blog page, WITF Cooks. So um, these four cookbooks are all from 10 Speed Press, and um, they really sort of represent the foundation of my summer cooking. Um, I'm already cooking from them, and I'll be cooking from them for the rest of the season, probably into the fall, and tailgating. So there's four books. One is called Spritz, which is sort of your craft cocktail mixologist um, go-to guide. I noticed you listed that first. Yes. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Then there's, a, then there's one called Around the Fire, which is really a terrific new current modern spin on backyard grilling. Uh, and it's filled with everything from backyard grilling barbecue recipes. But it also has a lot of, um, you know, great sautés and side dishes and salads that you can pair with them. Um, it's just a whole intriguing new way of looking at the backyard barbecue. Well, I, one thing, can I interrupt? for just sure. one second uh, all the covers on all four of these books are very enticing as you said many They're times short. with uh, with cookbooks a cover will uh, attract someone well I'm, I'm looking at uh, around the fire and I see recipes for inspired grilling and seasonal feasting and I'm looking and I see a steak I see vegetables I can't see the one is hiding there it looks like chicken or some kind of, some kind of fowl but Darn, that looks good. Well, so that is exactly why. I mean, that's like the, that's really sort of the first hurdle and criteria for a great cookbook. Um, it has to be visually engaging because, as we always say when we're talking about food, we feast first with our eyes. So for you to notice that, I mean, that's really what's going to pull you in first. So Around the Fire is just absolutely visually compelling. And, you know, and it's funny, and I say in the review for that book that I was actually intimidated when I first started flipping through because the first full page color photographs are of massive fires and barbecue grills with grates that hold sides of beef. And I thought, you know, this is not going to work in yeah, my there's backyard. A, there's a big fire in the front, too. However, once you get into the actual recipes and you start reading, um, you know, how manageable they are they're all they're all tailored to a charcoal grill a gas grill uh, you know some of them are even doable on your uh, stovetop with a, a grill pan oh. so there's two more there's right, two more the books two? Um, yeah. the other one that I, I'm, I'm really in love with right now is sweeter off the vine it's fruit dirt fruit desserts for every season um, this is a, a, just a really I'm not a baker this is just a really easy kind of um, homey, rustic, traditional, yummy uh, baker's handbook. So for every season, summer, spring, winter, fall, um, the recipes are broken down. They've got transitional recipes. And, you know, really anymore, a lot of our fruits are seasonless. So this is going to be sort of my go-to guide uh, for quite a while uh, in tackling desserts and in, in, in ways that make me look like a genius in the kitchen. Um, well, yeah, cover that I have to comment on, too. It's a, some kind of strawberry dessert yeah. uh, with vanilla ice cream on top. So just well, think and, about that. And so, yes, and, and this book particularly uh, doesn't just cover baking. It goes into ice creams and sorbets and frozen yogurts and jams and preserves and marmalades. So there just is an entire... Uh, repertoire of home baking um, and I actually say in the review that this is one of those must have um, must cook from and must pass down books because they really do feel like what every 
summer, fall, winter season should be when it comes to thinking about serving dessert to your family. And then the last book is called The Elements of Pizza. And um, it's unusual that I would really dive into a topical cookbook, but this one is (laughs) so incredible. Um, Once you make a pizza from this book, you will wonder why you ever ordered out for pizza. Ah, really? It's really that good. Um, Now, uh, you know, full disclosure, the first hundred pages of this book are a, a real long but engaging in-depth conversation about pizza dough making, about the history of pizza, about the different styles of pizza, uh, you know, the step-by-step process of the long fermentation of pizza dough, which uh, can be off-putting. But then the author like just really sort of brings you back to reality and says, okay, I'm not stupid. Uh, you know, you're all going to be doing this over a workday week. So I've chunked all of the recipes down into this is what you do the night before you want the pizza. This is what you do when you get home. And really over the course of two days, you put in about 30 or 40 minutes work and you get these amazing, amazing pizzas. He includes recipes for sauces and then the toppings, which, um, you know, you look at them and you think, wow, I don't know why I never thought of putting those combination of the ingredients together, but I will from now on. So uh, the last thing to know about all of these cookbooks, they are going to be posted on WITF.org and um, the... Actually, on our Smart smart Talk is the name of the show. Smart Talk uh, (laughs) page today as well. So... At the end of every recipe, or I'm sorry, at the end of every cookbook review, as I said, we have permission to reprint recipes. So there's a handful of recipes at the end of each book that allow you to dive in and actually start cooking from these books before, like I said, you go down and plunk the money out for them. So, um, you know, for our food-loving community and home cooks, this is, you know, this is a great place to start um, looking for summer ideas. All right. Well, let me, before I get into, because I'm going to ask about a recipe from each one. Okay. Um, how do you write a review of a cookbook? Um, you know, I, I, I cook from it. I read it. Uh, and then I just sort of start having a conversation with myself about... Actually uh, out loud? Yes. Oh, okay. uh, you know, about... Uh, about you know what what makes what makes this cookbook worthwhile, and you know I mean my reputation's on the line here because I am I am basically telling all of you people out there that any one of these books would be worthwhile in your cookbook repertoire, and um, so I want to make sure that I convey you know what's in the book realistically what you're going to have to tackle like the spritz uh, cocktail book um, if you start diving into these recipes and I say this in my review you're going to go crazy. It's fun, but you're going to start laying out a lot of cash for some of these really crazy liqueurs. There's one called Zwack that they combine with Miller High Life. And I'm looking for Zwack, but when I find it, I promise you that I'm going to buy it and and make this this cocktail. So You haven't found Zwack? I haven't found Zwack yet, no. Pennsylvania Looking Control Board, if you're listening, yes, Zwack. we're ready. Zwack. I'm, I'm looking for it. All right, it. Let's, let's talk about uh, some of the re- a recipe from each. And okay. let's start with uh, spritz, the cocktail recipes. Okay. So, you know, spritz is basically, um, I, I don't want to say it, but if, if you think of the, the white wine spritzer and that sort of low alcohol, um, nice, crisp, dry, refreshing cocktail, that's what they're after here. But what they do is they lay out an archetype for a craft mixologist that you want to be. Um, They give you the basic ratio. They talk about the liquors that you can use or the liqueurs, I should say. Um, And then they combine it with Prosecco or club soda or tonic water or seltzer. And then they give you a whole 
slew of ideas, a whole bunch of recipes, um, you know, everything from the classic, like the Venetian spritz, which is just um, Aperol or Campari and Prosecco and club soda. I mean, that's as easy as it gets to, you know, some of the more fun ones. Like I said, this hungry, hungry hipster, which includes the Zwack and the Miller High Life. So um, they're they're really fun. They're very cool. They're very dry, slightly bitter, but really refreshing. And they're all. Do you have one as a favorite? Um, you know, the Venetian spritz is just, it's so easy and so refreshing. Um, you know, it's, it's your happy hour kickoff cocktail. Uh, and, you know, it quenches your thirst and in the middle of summer, if you're sitting out on the deck or on the beach and, you know, you're looking for something that's going to, you know, quench your thirst, uh, you can do this without, well, and, and let's just say, be ready for the rest of the night. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a really fun book to dive into. All right. Let's move on to Around the Fire. Barbecue and uh, grill recipes. Yeah, this one's really hard to pick out uh, a recipe. We requested uh, and received the rights to um, two recipes. One is the ash seared lamb loin, and the other is the cast iron grilled trout. And I like both of these recipes. First, the the lamb loin. You're using a different cut of meat than you would typically find, but your butcher your butcher will have it. Um, but they actually talk about, if you're using a char- charcoal grill fire, they actually talk about putting that grill right on top of the coals so you're getting an ash sear. Now, I did mine on a regular gas grill, and, you know, it, it explains how to do it. Just a quick sear, boom, 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 and you're done. But what's really fabulous in this is the charred orange and then the cumin chili oil recipe that goes along with it. I mean, these are the component recipes that once you, you know, you glaze your lamb loin with it, you're, you're just, you're just blown away. It's creative, it's inventive, and it's the furthest thing from, you know, lamb and mint jelly that you'll ever come across. So that's brilliant. And I always love uh, when chefs or cookbook authors show you different ways to use apparatus and putting a cast iron grill or putting a cast iron pan on a grill um, completely opens up the way you can use your grill. It becomes your outdoor stove. So, oh, yeah. My brother-in-law uses cast iron all the time. It's it's really it's smart. Great. It's really smart. Um, you know, where I'm doing a, an event on Friday night, and one of the recipes we're doing skewers with bacon, and, uh, you know, you only have to put bacon on an open flame once, and um, you'll never do it again. So cast iron is the way to go, and okay. it's, it's really it's really great, too. All right, too. so what about the trout? Oh, the trout, you know, so whole trout, um, you know, more and more you're seeing in the grocery stores, um, whole fishes, and, and they typically fillet them for you and, you know, get the bones out and everything. But really to put this trout together and um, uh, do it on the cast iron or the cast iron pan, um, it just really gives a nice, beautiful flavor. And to present a whole fish, you know, whether it's you know, just to friends or family, um, it, it sort of gives you that, yeah, let's all sit down and dive in and share this meal together kind of feel. So it's a simple, easy recipe, easy to tackle. So uh, sweeter off the vine. I have to admit that when you first sent this to me, because you sent the, the list of books, I was thinking wine off when I saw something off the oh. vine. But no, this is about fruit. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, I'm sure we could try and make it about I'm wine. sure you could. You always do. Uh, um, no. So, yeah, Sweeter Off the Vine. Um, you know, this one was, like I said, compelling um, mostly because I, I'm not really that great of a baker and I'm not really a fan of fruit. My husband, however, is. And he loves fruit pies, fruit tarts. So, um, you know, when I started diving into this this book, what I found is that 
the flavors of each season are really beautifully captured, but uh, the author, she's a popular food blogger, and she really just covers everything from the simplest, like five ingredient kind of recipes to really super complex pastry art kind of um, doughs and, and um, crusts. So you, you, you have a choice. And, you know, even if you decide to dive headlong into those more complex recipes, she's got a really neat way of writing. And, um, you know, it's like she's talking to you in, while you're in the kitchen, you know, use the dregs of the liquid that's left in the, you know, in your mixing cup and just, you know, dribble them over your dough and let it rise. I think, okay, that's genius. I know what the dregs of, you know, remaining liquid in my, in my measuring cup are. So, um, but she creates rustic home homey kind of desserts and you know I'm a fan of anything that's like easy so I requested the reprint for the pistachio pound cake but what she does is she serves it with strawberries and lavender sugar so you've got like something really nutty and meaty with something really sweet that's made even sweeter but yet like accents the the floral notes with a little bit of lavender I mean it's sheer genius and super easy to achieve in your kitchen and then a chamomile honey panna cotta which is like drinking a cup of cream tea so Mm. they're delicious okay our last one uh, you you touched on a little bit the elements of pizza do you have a favorite recipe from the book I do it's the vodka and sausage pizza pizza and while that might sound like oh well you know I can get that anywhere yeah no just take a look at this review and take a look at the um, recipe for this Um, the vodka sauce is incredibly easy um, but the way the way he writes it is is just beautiful and you know rather than getting a runny tomatoey kind of sauce it's just this thick unctuous you know vodka punched kind of uh, flavor which pairs amazingly well with a, a fennel spiced sausage so um, you know if you like pan pizza he's got a dough in the book for that if you like thin crust pizza he's got a dough in that in the book for that and if you are gluten free. He actually tackles that too with a lot of vegetarian recipes, gluten free dough. Um, you know, it's just a whole beautiful uh, way to look at pizza. Yeah, actually, we had a, a one of our listeners uh, send an email said, "When will we ever see a gluten free cookbook that's not filled with recipes for what my wife and I call fake gluten?" Well, yeah, you know, and and the world is um, certainly becoming aware of um, people with real gluten sensitivities and you know celiac disease. So, um, I will tell you if you're looking for that the elements of pizza is a great place to dive into um and also around the fire is another great place to go i mean this isn't just a meat cookbook this is um meat and fish and vegetables there are vegetarian dishes there are some vegan recipes in there um so you really can get um, a flavor for everything And, and i think those two books really uh, really can can address whatever kind of cooking preferences you have. So the reviews uh, are on WITF.org. And, you know, by the way, I have to tell you this quick story. You know how on Facebook uh, your memories come up? Yes. Ironically, this morning I had a memory of WITF Cooks, the show that you did at uh, York uh, Central oh, yeah, Market. Yeah, where, uh, where we were where, cooking together and right, you were learning right. a lot that's, that day. I, I was learning a lot that day. <laughs> that just happened to come on Facebook. That's fabulous. Today. I'll have to repost that. But, uh, that's fabulous. Chef Donna Marie Desfour, thank you very much. And uh, again, I, I, 
you're sitting here listening to it. Know, it's I'm not hungry. just it's not just a visual. It's a, all the senses involved. Just hearing the descriptions now makes me want to go through the cookbooks as well. But uh, Donna, thank you very much for being with us today. Always fun to be here. Donna Marie Desfor, always uh, fun to have her on the program. Coming up later this week on Friday, uh, Brad Bumstead, who was with us yesterday covering the Kathleen Kane trial, talks about his new book that includes the Kathleen Kane uh, scandal and other things that's coming up later this week.